I'm Nathan Rutherford, and welcome to Myth Madness. This episode focuses on the Greek hero Orpheus. The ancient Greeks believed this man was from the Greek region of Thrace, located in the north. They also believed Thrace was a wild place, full of warring tribes of non-Greek barbarians. Surprisingly, though, Orpheus was not warlike. He was a bard, a talented musician, and not really a warrior at all. The earliest reference to Orpheus's name is by the 6th century poet Ibycus, so we know he was at least present in some way in the late Archaic period. A little bit later, Pindar calls him a master lyrist and the father of songs. Consistent with the connection to music, Pindar has him the son of the god Apollo, the Olympian god most closely associated with the musical arts. However, like with many Greek heroes, Orpheus may have had two fathers. Multiple sources give him a human father. In these accounts, his father was Oagris, a king in Thrace. In different versions, there is also some variation on who Orpheus' mother was, but she is always one of the muses. These were the Greek goddesses of the arts, and they gave Orpheus yet another connection to music and poetry. Orpheus is a strange hero. He was undoubtedly important to the ancient Greeks. Yet, he is not mentioned by name in the works of Homer or Hesiod. Pindar and Diodorus only make quick references to him, which is very interesting as Diodorus, in particular, was very thorough in his recordings of mythological tales. What this means for the pod is that in many of the sources for Greek myths I've been using as the backbone for my episodes, Orpheus is missing in action. So, this episode's retellings will entirely rely on later sources from the Roman era. The best-known myth about Orpheus involves his wife Eurydice. Even though it's fairly well-known, it does not appear in a whole lot of ancient Greek sources. Apollodorus's library, normally a fantastic collection of many different myths, says very little about it, giving a couple lines of summary when covering Orpheus's life. The most detailed versions of this story come in the works of two Roman poets, Virgil and Ovid, and both versions are very consistent with each other. At the start, Eurydice is walking by a river, and is chased by someone, usually a satyr. Satyrs were half-human hybrids. They often had goat or horse-like features, sometimes hooves, sometimes a tail, little horns, lots of hair, and often walked around exposing their long, erect penises. They often tried to seduce or rape nymphs they found in the forest. In Virgil's poem, Eurydice flees along a river after being approached by a satyr. Long grass grew on the banks of this river, and this hid a large snake from Eurydice's view. When she passed by, the snake bit her on the ankle. Unfortunately for Eurydice, the snake was venomous, and she collapsed and died shortly after. Ovid's version follows this closely, but adds a more tragic detail, that this event happened on the day of Orpheus and Eurydice's wedding. When Orpheus learned of the death of his wife, he mourned, filling the high heavens with his cries and singing sadly of their now lost love. Eventually, he decided to make his way to the underworld and see if he could bring Eurydice back. But how was he to get there? Fortunately for Orpheus, even though the underworld was not easy for a living person to travel to, there were several entrances scattered around the landscape. 
Virgil and Ovid both say Orpheus traveled to the underworld gate at Tainarum. There, there was a pathway to the land of the dead through the mouth of a cave. Tainarum is located at the most southern point on the Greek mainland, so Orpheus would have to leave the wild reaches of Thrace in the north and travel all across Greece to get there. I've actually mentioned Tainarum on the pod before. This is usually the same way Heracles got to the underworld during his twelve labors. Anyway, Orpheus enters the cave at Tainarum and finds himself in the land of the dead. In classic Orpheus fashion, he has been strumming on his lyre and singing the entire time. In this way, he walks past shimmering phantoms and other ghosts. In Greek myth, the shades of the dead typically were imagined as wandering aimlessly around a big meadow. It's a very quiet, melancholic existence, almost boring. The presence of Orpheus added some excitement to their afterlives. The shades were stirred by the beauty of his song, and all manner of inhabitants of the underworld stopped to listen to the music. The Furies paused from their tortures. The guard dog Cerberus watched the bard and his three heads forgot to bark as he passed by. The cruel icy winds blowing through Tartarus died down, and various scoundrels being punished in the underworld found themselves with a quick break. The fiery wheel punishing Ixion, the attempted rapist of the goddess Hera, ground to a halt before restarting its rotation after he passed. Sisyphus, who had to push a rock up a hill forever, was able to stop and take a break. Eventually, Orpheus found his way to the palace of Hades and Persephone. He was brought before the thrones of the king and queen of the underworld. He played his lyre for them, and begged that Eurydice be returned to spend her life with him. The rulers of the dead were moved by Orpheus's words and music, and called for the shade of Eurydice, who slunk out from the crowd of watching spirits. The god and goddess said they would allow Eurydice to follow Orpheus back to the world of the living and return to life. But there was one condition. In different versions, the condition was placed by either Hades or Persephone. But either way, the condition was that Eurydice would follow behind Orpheus, and he could not look back until they both left the underworld through the gate at Tainarum. Orpheus, with Eurydice following, retraced his steps. They slowly neared the upper world, moving in silence through the dark underworld depths. But just when they were nearing the end of their voyage, Orpheus was struck with a frenzy of thoughts. Did Hades even know how to pardon the dead? Was she even there? Had he been tricked? He feared he might lose her again, and he looked back to see her. Instantly, Eurydice slipped away, like smoke in thin air, and vanished. Her last word was farewell, which Orpheus could barely hear. Orpheus held out his arms to try and feel her shape, eager to rescue her, but he grabbed hold of nothing but empty air. Eurydice had died for a second time. Without his wife, Orpheus returned to the land of the living. Every day for seven months, he sat beside a stream, cried, and played on his lyre. The music attracted animals who joined him in his mourning. That is the classic story of Orpheus and Eurydice. It's a tragic story that tells the lengths a man will go to regain his lost love before ultimately failing. Orpheus goes to great, superhuman lengths to try and rescue Eurydice, to go all the way to the rulers of the dead and bring back his wife. It's an impossible task. Many today look at this story and assume it's supposed to be an almost romantic story. Look at Orpheus and what he tried to do. That's what true love is. But this myth may be trying to say something else. 
Orpheus here is attempting to bring someone back from the dead, something beyond the means of a mere mortal human being. Doing these kind of things usually gets Greek heroes into trouble with the gods for showing excessive pride and hubris. There is in fact an earlier reference to the Orpheus and Eurydice story, and it is found in the Greek philosopher Plato's Symposium. This was written around 350 or 400 years before Virgil and Ovid, and Plato's references contain something very interesting. Plato says Hades and Persephone only showed Orpheus a ghostly image of Eurydice, not the real girl. That they refused to give back the real Eurydice, since his journey to the underworld was the quest of a coward, and that he wasn't brave enough to die to be with his dead wife. Now, this may only be Plato's interpretation of the myth, but it does explain the gods' actions in the later stories, and also that Orpheus's loss of Eurydice may not have only been purely because he looked back. Orpheus's descent to the underworld shows his power with music in action. Hades, Persephone, and the other inhabitants of the underworld were moved by his songs. Besides strumming the lyre, he also sang. But what exactly did he sing about? In many cases, sacred knowledge formed the basis of his songs, and he acted as an oracle, in addition to being a bard. The figure of Orpheus was closely tied to ancient Greece's mystery cults. Apollodorus says he was the founder of the mystery religion dedicated to the god Dionysus. Orpheus was also considered the founder of a mix of religious beliefs we call Orphism today. At some point in the future, I'll dedicate some episodes to Greek mystery cults and Orphism, but for now, know that Orphism involved a, a reimagining of many Greek myths. Orphism contained ideas about how the universe was created that were very different than the other traditions referenced by Hesiod. Orphic hymns also give us an idea of how the Greeks thought about their religion and not just their myths. Within Orphism, the immortals Dionysus and Persephone were very important. That may come as a surprise, since the musical Orpheus seems more obviously connected to Apollo, but the connection mostly comes back to descents to the underworld. Orpheus, Dionysus, and Persephone all had myths where they descended to the land of the dead and then later returned. Sometimes, all the sacred knowledge Orphism was supposed to be based on was said to have been gained by Orpheus when he went to the underworld, and that he brought it back and founded the mystery cult with it. Besides the story of Orpheus's descent to the underworld, his other main adventure was his involvement with Jason's quest for the Golden Fleece. In my Jason episodes, I mostly followed Apollonius of Rhodes's poem, The Argonautica, which includes Orpheus as one of the Argonauts. Two other sources, Apollodorus' Library and Hyginus's Fabulae, also mention him as a crew member for the Argo, and give a few examples of how he helped the other heroes with his music. But there is another Greek poem that really emphasizes Orpheus's role in the Golden Fleece adventure. The poem is known as the Orphic Argonautica. Scholars used to consider it one of the oldest surviving Greek poems, but this opinion is now widely rejected. Instead, it's considered one of the latest, probably written in the 5th or 6th century AD, but purposely written in a style that mimics the older language of the archaic period epic poems, like those written by Homer. The Orphic Argonautica is weird in another way, too. It tells the adventure of the Golden Fleece, but it uses the perspective of Orpheus. 
you really get the impression that Orpheus is writing the story himself, emphasizing what he did on the adventure. It's full of first-person narration. I did this, I did that. Good English translations are few and far between. I found one by a man named Jason Colavito online. He is very open about how he is not a professional translator, but I think his translation is useful for getting a good idea of the plot of the poem. Essentially, the narrative follows the classic Apollonius version very closely, so I'm not going to provide a full retelling of it here. In this poem, the Argonauts make similar stops along the way to and from Colchis. But the Orphic Argonautica emphasizes the role of Orpheus, and also includes a few interesting differences in details. One is the poem gives us a better idea of the Olympian gods' support for the Argonauts. In Apollonius's Argonautica, Hera and Athena are the main patrons to the heroes. Hera, in particular, looks out for Jason, while Athena was responsible for helping to build the Argo ship. In Apollonius, there is a slight hint that Hera is the senior partner, because when it came time to get the witch Medea to help Jason, Athena let Hera take the lead. But in the Orphic Argonautica, this senior partner, junior partner role seems to be present from the very beginning. In this poem, Hera first recruits Athena to build the Argo. While the Argo was being constructed, Jason assembled heroes for the adventure. In almost all accounts of this story, he put out a call, and heroes from far and wide set out to meet him at Iolcos and join the crew. But in the Orphic Argonautica, Jason did not wait for everybody to arrive. He actually set out to gather heroes himself, and he made a special trip to the mountains of Pyria, where Orpheus lived, to ask the lyre player to join the adventure. Jason found Orpheus living in a cave, the place where he was born, and where he lived with his wife when she was alive. Jason told him that the other crew members really wanted Orpheus to join them, since he, at that time, was the only man who had managed to journey to the underworld and return back. Since he had been successful at that seemingly impossible task, they thought he'd be a big help on their current quest for the Golden Fleece. There are, of course, other examples of heroes making trips to the underworld, like Heracles, for example. But in the hinted chronology of Greek myths, those trips happened after the Argonauts' adventure. Orpheus agreed to Jason's request, saying he would come and join the younger heroes, and then afterwards would return back to his cave to grow old and die. In the Orphic Argonautica, the adventure begins in a similar way to other well-known versions. The heroes meet on the beach and bring the Argo down to the sea. Playing up Orpheus's importance, the heroes were happy to see him. He played music to motivate them, and then led them in swearing an oath to complete the quest, and that whoever fails to honor this pact may the Furies destroy him. Like in the Apollonius version, the Orphic Argonautica features the heroes trying to make Heracles their leader, and then being directed to choose Jason when Heracles says no. While the poem contains a similar journey to the better-known Argonautica, the first place they stop is different. In the Orphic Argonautica, as the ship passes Mount Pelion, the Argonaut hero Peleus points out the cave of Chiron, and says they should go up to see the centaur and Peleus's young son Achilles. When the Argonauts arrive, Chiron and Orpheus have a friendly music competition. Chiron plays the lyre, and sings about battles between centaurs and humans. Orpheus's song is much more mystical. First, 
he sang about the primordial chaos, how the elements were ordered, and the creation of the earth and the depths of the sea. He sang about the primordial god Eros, and how he generated all things and separated them from each other, a detail that differs from the usual Greek creation story. But then Orpheus returns to more familiar territory. He also covered the defeat of Kronos and the rise of Zeus and the younger generations of the gods, and the destruction caused by the giants. So, basically, Orpheus covers a lot. The Orphic Argonautica just mentions the topics. Whatever that whole song would have been, sounds like it could have stood as its own epic poem. In the end, Orpheus moves everyone present. Wild animals and birds gathered outside of Chiron's cave to listen. Clearly, Orpheus had won the music contest. Before the Argonauts returned to the ship, Chiron gave Orpheus a fine leopard skin as a gift and as a prize. Returning to the voyage, the next major stop was the island of Lemnos, where the heroes spent time with the women of the island. Apollonius's Argonautica really highlights this event, but the Orphic poem very quickly covers it. What's more, while Apollonius had Heracles finally tire of the island and force the Argonauts to remember their quest and leave, the Orphic Argonautica gives this job to Orpheus. According to Orpheus, the heroes would never have left if he hadn't called them back to the ship with his beautiful music. This is not the only time the poem gives a larger role to Orpheus in navigating the voyage's dangers. The next example comes when the Argo reached the Clashing Rocks. In Apollonius's version, the heroes use a bird to time the movement of the cliffs and then row at full speed to get through them before they close. The Orphic poem does hint at something like this. There's a line saying a heron was sent by Athena to help them. But, at the same time, Orpheus claims he charmed the rocks with his music. His song caused the rocks to remain still, while the heroes escaped through a narrow channel between them. In this poem, Orpheus is something of a miracle worker. In the Golden Fleece adventure, the heroes encounter several threats, some of them more supernatural than others. The Orphic Argonautica assigns Orpheus a role in helping the heroes navigate these supernatural encounters, or at least overcome them with his supernatural powers over music. In the poem, the other heroes take care of the more standard physical dangers. When the Argo finally arrives at its destination, Orpheus once again is placed in an important role. After Jason completes his famous task of sowing a field with dragon's teeth and defeating the soldier army that grew up from them, he now has to get his hands on the Golden Fleece itself. In the classic version, the witch girl Medea helps Jason do this, and only she and Jason actually enter the place where the fleece is guarded by a dangerous serpent monster. In the Orphic Argonautica, Medea helps Orpheus perform a sacrifice to Pandora, Hecate, and Artemis. The sacrifice pleases the goddesses, and the gates to a walled garden where the fleece is kept swing open. A whole group of heroes, including Jason, Medea, Orpheus, and three other Argonauts, go inside. Once inside, the serpent lifted its head from beneath its broad coils and let out a deadly hiss. We're told the heroes were all terrified except for Medea, but it is Orpheus who puts the serpent to sleep after playing a lullaby on his lyre. Jason takes the fleece, and they all make their escape on the Argo. On the return voyage, the heroes make various stops, many of which are similar to Apollonius's version. 
Medea's brother pursues them and is killed, but we don't get a lot of details on how they manage to do this. Like in the classic story, the heroes are helped by the nymph Thetis in bypassing a dangerous part of the sea, they arrive in Crete and are attacked by the giant Talos, Orpheus gets the heroes safely past the sirens, and there's also the whole quickie marriage between Jason and Medea to stop her from being forced to go home. But another key difference between Apollonius's version and the Orphic one is what happens when the Argo comes to the island of the witch Circe. She is actually Medea's aunt, and she helps purify Jason and Medea of the murder of Medea's brother before telling them to get the hell off her island. In the Orphic Argonautica, it's a little different. Circe comes to greet the ship and takes pity on Medea. She doesn't let them come to her house because they are impure, but she sends food and refreshments for them to eat. Instead of doing the purification herself, Circe says Orpheus will help Medea appease the gods. This doesn't happen right away, but near the end of the journey, Orpheus is responsible for doing a sacrifice to purify Jason and Medea. With that complete, and the wrath of the gods soothed, the heroes return to Iolcos. With the adventure over, Orpheus returns to the humble cave where his mother gave birth to him. After the death of his wife, Orpheus stayed in his cave and mourned her. Joining Jason on his quest was really just a short break in this. Orpheus was a broken man, and his depression resumed after the adventure ended. Due to his faithfulness to his dead wife, he remained alone in the cave and avoided all women. This state of affairs would continue until his death. Ancient authors generally agree on how Orpheus died, but disagree on the reasons why. One day, Orpheus was attacked by a group of Maenads, female worshippers of the god Dionysus. The Maenads were in a frenzy, something that they often experienced when performing the sacred rites to Dionysus. The Maenads surrounded Orpheus, grabbed hold of his arms, legs, and head, and tore him to shreds, throwing his bloody limbs to the ground. There were two main reasons why they did this. In one, the Maenads ripped him apart because they were annoyed at his inattentiveness. He ignored them. After the death of his wife, he lost all interest in women, and the Maenads did not like that. In the other tradition, dating at least to the time of the Athenian playwright Aeschylus, Orpheus is a devotee of the god Apollo, and ignored the other gods. Every morning, he climbed a mountain to watch the sun rise. One day, Dionysus, tired of being ignored, and sent the maidens to punish him by tearing the man apart. After his death, the Muses, the goddesses of the arts, tearfully gathered up the pieces and buried him. In some versions, Orpheus's severed head was taken to a shrine, where it sometimes spoke to visitors and provided prophecies. And that sums up the myths of the Greek hero Orpheus. In many ways, he is more of a religious figure than a mythological one being the legendary founder of an offshoot of the ancient Greek religion. Additionally, over time, he gained the role of a culture hero. In this role, different authors said he gave medicine, writing, and agriculture to human beings, and these are all things normally said to be provided by other heroes. The followers of Orphism probably assigned these to Orpheus in order to build up the prestige of their founder. Orpheus's myths don't always seem to square well with his connection to Orphism. His parentage ties him to Apollo. He was a close worshipper of Apollo, and the earliest reference to Orpheus only referred to his musical ability. Unfortunately, how exactly he went from Apollo-worshipping lyre player 
to Dionysian prophet hero remains a mystery today. And that's all for today. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with a friend. As always, thank you for listening.